0: Is it hot in here or is it just me?
1: Oh, it's hot everywhere. In fact, it's getting hotter all the time. Because of global warming? Global warming has a lot of consequences. Yeah, everyone in England is going to turn red, bright red. Yeah, that's the big one. You guys do tan well, don't you?
0: Yeah, that is the big one. But of course, there are very serious consequences apart from that.
1: Floods, storms, drought, all kinds of stuff. The question is this,
0: can we fix the climate? And can we finance the cost of fixing it? Climate and finance. Should we get some experts in to talk about climate
1: finance? Mm, I have a feeling it's a discussion that could get quite heated.
0: (laughs) Well, the clock is ticking on global warming, so let's start the podcast without further ado. Today on a dictionary of finance from the European Investment Bank, Climate Finance. So we're joined for this episode of uh, A Dictionary of Finance from the European Investment Bank uh, by two experts on climate finance. We've got uh, Nancy Sage, who is a senior technical advisor. I say a senior. You're the senior technical advisor in climate and environment in the bank's environmental, climate, and social office. Uh, And we're also joined by Martin Berg, who is an investment officer in the Infrastructure Funds and Climate Action Unit. And uh, right now, as we're recording this, uh, the Conference of Parties, which of course is, you know, uh, probably involves a lot of DJs and things like that, the 23rd one is going on in Bonn. And that is, uh, well, how would you define that, actually, Nancy? What is the Conference of Parties, really?
2: Well it's all the representatives of all the countries that have signed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change so it's so a it's, big it's
0: a big UN that's
2: 197 the- countries or something like that yep so it's a lot of people coming from around the world to negotiate the next steps of the Paris Agreement.
0: And you've been going there for quite a while now, right?
2: uh, I think this is my sixth COP, actually. I haven't been going there that much because before then I was doing engineering, but uh, I've been working in climate for about six years, yeah. It's
0: always a different place, right? Where was your first one?
2: Doha, in the desert, in Qatar.
0: Ah, okay. So they should know about... Well, actually, no, the climate doesn't really change there very much, does it? It's oh, yes. the desert. It's always no, hot.
2: it's getting hotter. And really? Yeah, yeah. They're really worried about more extreme heat in the summer, yeah.
0: But you're from Britain. Is the climate changing in
2: Britain? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's, we're having a lot of floods, rather more serious floods and more regular floods, yes. Which is uh, an interesting contrast for me because I'm married to a South African and uh, he comes from Cape Town and there they're experiencing absolutely the opposite, much more extreme water stress and, and droughts, very serious. Mm. Martin,
1: what about you? When, when was your first cop?
3: My first COP, well, I'm, I'm, I started actually getting involved in this issue in, in, in '98. It wasn't a COP; it was a so-called substa meeting. Because it's not only the COPS that meet every year; there are also smaller, more technical meetings that are, that are happening at least twice a year, sometimes even more often. And I, uh, mm-hmm. I was a student, and I didn't even know what what was going on there. I studied in Bonn; their meeting in Bonn, uh, the convention, the United. Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is actually located in Bonn. Okay. And uh, I stumbled uh, a little bit into this. And uh, they said, what do I need to know? Well, you have to speak English. I said, yes, I speak English. And, uh, and then I found it fascinating. It was an absolute fascinating um, environment to to get the sort of first experience. I mean, I, I did this part-time. Whenever whenever there was a conference, they they needed a lot of more staff, usually students. And, uh, and so I got involved. And, and then I I thought, oh, wait a minute, what 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 are they actually discussing there? And I, I started to really focus also in my studies on it, and, uh, and in the end, I made a career out of it.
0: So let's start. Before we actually get onto the finance part of it, climate finance, let's actually talk about where that really comes from. It comes from the fact that there is something going on called climate change. Nancy, what is climate change?
2: Okay, well... Climate change, as we talk about it now, is the climate change that's being caused by human uh, emissions of CO2. Uh, The climate has changed always over millennia, but the climate is changing now rather more rapidly and in a particular direction, meaning warming. um, And it's doing it very fast due to there being more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So you do hear a lot about greenhouse gases... Um, it's important to remember that the greenhouse effect is actually what keeps us all alive. Uh, If there were not greenhouse gases, there would be no people on this planet. So when everything is balanced, that works well. The sun's heat comes in, we're all alive, crops grow, and some of it radiates back out into space. But if you have more greenhouse gas, and the most common is carbon dioxide, then more heat stays in. So the sun's heat comes in, but less of it filters out. So it's more of a greenhouse than it used to be. And this is what's causing the temperature to gradually rise. And as we keep emitting more and more CO2, the climate is going to keep on changing. But it's changing in a direction that will be very, very hard for human beings to manage. That's why there is this urgent need to reduce what we're emitting.
0: And so reducing what we're emitting, the the term of art for that is climate action.
2: Well, climate action normally people split it into two parts: one is mitigation, so there 's a technical term, but what it basically means is addressing the emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas in either reducing them, avoiding them or sequestering them which is another word rather long word but it means um, absorbing the co2 and currently the only way we actually have to do that is to plant more trees because trees absorb carbon dioxide so that's mitigation that's avoiding emitting more co2 but there's also adaptation and adaptation is the other side of the coin which means that we have to adapt to a changing climate And even if we were to stop emitting CO2 uh, right now, and if it it was to stabilise in the atmosphere, the climate has already started to change, oceans have already started to warm, and the weather and the climate is already changing and will continue to change. So we have to adapt to that. That might mean uh, more extreme events, but it can also mean adapting to slow but inevitable changes like sea level rise. And that's adaptation.
0: And all this has to be paid for somehow. So that's where we get to the, the topic of today, which is climate finance. Martin, can we say broadly, before we get into the details, what is climate finance?
3: It's actually a very good question. And uh, it, it really depends who you ask. So uh, I think, uh, in, in general terms, I would, I would argue, it is it is anything that helps to either reduce greenhouse gases, or, or it helps uh, someone to adapt to climate change. But I think the, perhaps we should go a bit a bit back to how how the whole term was introduced in, in the context of these UN negotiations, because in the end that's really why we're using it now a lot, that's why it receives so much international um, attention and, and uh, you may recall there was something called the Kyoto Protocol, which was signed in 1997, and it was an international treaty, also under the Framework Convention on Climate Change. It had a very different approach to how the climate problem should be solved, and it was really that every country received almost an allocation, or at least an obligation, to reduce by a certain amount. But Nancy just described as we we know that revising. Greenhouse gases are the consequences, so they try to calculate by what amount do we actually have to reduce, and what should everybody's share be and It was a very complex uh, undertaking to negotiate that with one hundred and ninety or one hundred and ninety seven um, governments and and uh, one thing we shouldn 't forget there are some countries that will say well. We actually never really produced many greenhouse gases. If you look at smaller island states, if you look at countries that don't actually have a big economy, they will say, why should we do anything to... We haven't caused the problem. It's really the industrialized um, countries that, that are responsible for this. It's in particular Europe, the US, if you look at Australia and Canada, those are the, those are the ones that really have the very high, not only... On an aggregated basis, emissions, but also on a per capita. If you if you look the the comparison between the average American and the average uh, person from from Haiti or from Bangladesh, then there are huge differences in in the amount of greenhouse gases they they're, they're they're producing, and, and uh, that obviously was was then very difficult to negotiate. So what they came up with, was this whole system where they said the developing countries don't have to do anything, and the industrialized governments each received a certain amount of a quota that they had to achieve. And it was a little bit done um, uh, like an arms race. And, 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 and this, is, this is how the UN works as well. And There's this mantra saying, okay, we have a problem, we have a scientific body that tells us what we have to do, and then we, we, we take action in, in, in this regard. In this instance here, we reduce. But in the end, um, as you may recall with the, with the Kyoto Protocol, it didn't really work because governments in the end pulled out. First the US, then the Australians, then the Canadians, and they came in. There. So it's a very complex story. So in the end, there were only a few countries left, and and so in around 2009, 10, people were scratching their head and saying, "What can we do?" Um, at the same time, it was clear this is such a vast problem, and the reason why, let's say, the US pulled out was always to look at China and saying, "Look, look at the Chinese emissions. They're building power plant, coal power plants." And uh, there was a phase where they were building a coal power plant every week. So why, you know, they are they are causing as much a problem now, and it will be a problem in the future. Why should they not do anything? So this this really led to to, to a significant problem. How can we entice developing countries to also do something about it? And this is where climate uh, finance was really invented, so to
1: speak. Uh, so how did Paris? How did the Paris Agreement address that in a different way?
3: Well, first first. Of all, there was this promise made in 2009 and then repeated in ten, that developing countries will get additional resources or will get resources. We've probably come to the point whether they really have to be additional. I'm sure we have a good discussion with Nancy about it, but a different interpretation about it. But basically the number, this figure of 100 billion was, was thrown into the negotiations and saying every year... There are 100 billion that are available for developing countries to help them mitigate
1: greenhouse gases and to adapt to, to climate the, change. So the developed countries, in addition to having to cut down their own uh, emissions and uh, investing a lot of money in there, in that would additionally have to also pay 100 billion to cut down the the emissions of the non-developed countries. Well.
3: So so this this is where the whole process changed a bit, where it was clear by just going to a country and saying, and you now have to reduce over the next five years, 8% of your emissions is a very, very difficult task. And usually you will not find many governments and particularly not the the kind of interest groups within that country that are really signing up to this. So usually you're, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not you're getting anywhere. The U.S. is probably the best example. There's no chance to get anything like this through Congress. So they kind of changed tack and they said, well, why don't we make an incentive-based system? And this is where the 100 billion come in and saying, we, we, rather than saying we do this arms race approach, everybody has to reduce, we're saying everybody comes together and says, what could you do? By 2020 and beyond, what could you do, actually? How much could you reduce? What plans could you do, develop? And, and so they came up with this incentive, bottom-up approach. Um, and for that, you obviously needed money, in a way, in particular for developing countries. Um, and what now everybody, and this is, this is where Paris is significant, rather than just saying we as a community, as a world community, come together and saying this is a big problem and we reduce by X amount, we're saying we come together, we acknowledge it's a problem, and we all will come up with a plan now for the future, what we can do, and then we come together in intervals and we review. The idea is to say to uh, developing countries, rather than now saying I can't do anything, and it's a thing, what could you do if you had the money?
0: Well, just to to nail it down, this this is... 100 billion U.S. dollars per year to developing countries by 2020. Is that right, Nancy? So that, and the, the purpose of that would be to keep the temperature increase at 3 degrees Celsius, is that?
2: No, the Paris Agreement um, says well below 2 degrees for the mm-hmm. average Um, aiming for one and a half degrees. I think it's important to remember that the two degrees were set by scientists quite a long time ago as being the point beyond which A number of things start to happen that is difficult to predict for scientists. Uh, Tipping points may start to happen in terms of melting of uh, ice sheets and things like that. And very significant biodiversity and human impacts, some of which will be very difficult to manage. So that's why two degrees has been kept in the Paris Agreement, but the wording was slightly changed, was well below. um, Because a lot of people acknowledge that even two degrees may not be... Completely safe, some things could happen which will be quite challenging for human beings to deal with but well,
0: that 's only climate finance for for developing countries there. we're also talking about climate finance in general, so let 's say you know martin let 's look at some pick some random european country and let 's say what what sort of things are being done in terms of climate finance that our listeners would say oh that 's climate finance
3: yeah you could you could look at uh, any large say offshore wind project because they're nice and big and people may have seen this on tv or sometimes even from sometimes it's very difficult to see them but you know people people see them that's a classical one renewable energy in general would be an activity under climate finance but perhaps to repeat so i think this is where the where the term climate finance becomes a little bit murky so it started off with the developing countries and now everybody looks in all aspects okay what of, of financing that either um, supports mitigation or helps to adapt as climate finance, and so so that's why I'm saying it, it it really depends on who you're talking to, what they mean by climate finance. So, for example, we as a at at, at the bank we distinguish the climate finance that we're providing to developing countries, and then. In a, in a broader term, our own climate action financing. So, and I think it's important
1: to distinguish those two things. Well, with the, with the, with the mitigation, it seems to me fairly straightforward. And, and we discussed this with you, Nancy, just last week. It seems to me that with the adaptation part, that's, that's, that does get very confusing in a sense. You know, how do you define what, what kind of projects really uh, constitute uh, being climate adaptations?
2: Ah, well, when you touch on these <clears throat> overlapping areas, I think that's one of the challenges. Um, it's certainly true that we want our infrastructure, both here in Europe, but also in developing countries, to be resilient to future climate change impacts. Otherwise, all the money we're investing in it, uh, and at the European Investment Bank, we do support quite a lot of lending in developing countries, 10% of our total. So we, d- we want those projects to be sound. So we want them to be resilient to climate change, just as we want them to be well-maintained and to serve a, a, a useful purpose. So that is important. Um, also, inherently, there's nothing really wrong with a road. The issue is the vehicles on it, as you mentioned. So as well as uh, looking at the infrastructure, we also have to look at the technology of the vehicles. And that's where I would like to talk about some of the, um, the other challenges. I mean, Martin mentioned uh, renewable energy, but a lot of mitigation is also sectors that are not so obvious, including research and development into low-carbon solutions in, in all uh, sorts of sectors. I mean, um, a lot is happening in electric vehicles right now. Um, and once we really solve the problem of electric vehicles, then your climate resilient road uh, doesn't have inherently any problem for greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but it is also true that adaptation is, tends to be local. So it's really about what the cities, regions, countries or businesses are doing uh, and what we can help them do to adapt to climate change impacts. And that can be by investing in things, mm-hmm. building bigger things or relocating them. But it can also be by managing things differently or running them differently or even insuring them differently. So adaptation can be about physical investments, but it can also be about planning and management.
3: Yeah, but perhaps we should talk a bit about where, where do the 100 billion actually come from? Uh-huh. Which I think that's quite important that's and they kind of will we'll address this uh, yeah. uh, this question. So first of all, we're not there yet. The 100 billion, even under... It depends a little bit who you talk to, but if you look at now flows from governments, flows from multilateral development banks, other financing institutions, um, and then it's a, the, the question is a little bit how do you involve the private sector. When you look at the more classical kind of flows where money for climate has been, has been come, then we're probably... Not there yet, and I'm not. It's not my my own personal feeling. This is also what the OECD came up with just before the the big uh, How far conference and climate. Well, back then the, the latest number maybe Nancy knows more, but I think the the, the latest number were around sixty billion. I think uh, I think sixty one eight in two thousand fourteen, fifty point two billion in in two thousand thirteen. Since then, I haven't seen any any newer updates, and that was one of the first kind of attempts to really have a more quote unquote official number. You have other sources. You have, for example, the Climate Policy Initiative, a very leading think tank on this. They're coming up with a much broader definition. They're including a lot of the private finance as well. They're not claiming that those are part of the $100 billion that are promised, but they're just saying how much climate finance is there in general around the world. And they come to much higher numbers. I think for last year, they came for $383 billion.
0: Well, Martin, you brought up private finance and public finance. So there it brings us to the question of risk. And who's going to take the risk to finance the new technologies that Nancy was talking about?
3: If you look at uh, solar PV, if you look at onshore wind, one could say those are more mature technologies. Now, some people would say actually very mature technologies. And you see it also on – don't forget, a lot of those technologies were only – it was only possible to introduce them because they, they had actually significant subsidies, if you look Germany in Europe in general, you had very very high feed-in tariffs in the beginning because the idea was really to say those technologies will have will come down in cost so significantly that at some point they will not require any additional subsidies. And you could argue, and particularly in the case of PV, if you look at the the cost curve that has been reduced massively over over the last. Uh, well, 20 years, 10, Well, probably in the last 10 years. Every year, the, the cost for PV is, is falling. So you also need less governmental subsidies. In some countries now, notably Germany and some others, they're so reduced that actually those technologies are now uh, at a stage where they have to compete with other technologies on the market.
1: And I think that's a, that's a great example of what we were talking about earlier, about making climate finance potentially profitable for the private sector as well. But I think, you know, the way that happens is uh, through government making, you know, non-renewable energy uh, more expensive. You could
3: start by just reducing subsidies. And uh, because they... We're talking a lot about the subsidies for renewable energy, but if you look at almost any field in, or any, any type of project in the field of energy, they received some subsidies at some point. And we have a lot of fuel subsidies in many countries. And there, there are many studies about that. Actually, the fuel subsidies that are still paid around the world outstrip the, the subsidies that are paid to renewable energy and other low-carbon technologies by, by uh, quite a bit when we talk about climate finance, it's not only the cost, so it's not only that necessarily all the projects are not economically viable, it's also a matter of um, perception of risk. So in particular for the private sector, uh, the perception of risk of going into, let's say, renewable energy in Africa is something that may also hinder sometimes investments really happening there. And I think this is also where where um, public money can actually play a role and banks such as the EIB or, or the European Investment Bank or, um, or, or other um, multilateral development banks or other finance institutions are actually doing that by um, using public funds in a way that they're providing a risk cushion to private investors by what we call blending, i.e. using public monies with private money in order then to, um, to, to, to achieve that the project is actually financeable.
0: We had uh, an episode of this podcast on green bonds, Nancy, where you were kind enough to come and tell us all about them, uh, and our listeners can download that one as well and listen in, in detail on green bonds. But one of the things we talked about there was measuring the impact of an investment. So the green, you invest in a green bond, and then you're, you're told the, the impact in terms of uh, carbon emissions. Is that something we, you can do with any climate finance investment?
2: Well, when we're talking about mitigation, then obviously yes, the the aim is to reduce or avoid greenhouse gas emissions, and it's important to be transparent about what you believe that finance is going to be doing. Um, adaptation, it's a bit different because, and there's a lot of discussion going on at the moment about how you measure the successfulness, if you like, of your adaptation measure. Um, but on mitigation, yes, we should be able to do that. Right. However, however, it's important to there's a bit of a caveat is that you can use the numbers to tell many stories. And there are many different methodologies out there. And if you really want to, you can produce nice sums which show that clean coal, for example, is a big saving compared to dirty coal, which is why the list of activities that we at the European Investment Bank count as climate mitigation has been agreed with other banks because we realise that simply doing greenhouse gas accounting doesn't always provide you with a list that we feel happy to say this is a good list of mitigation activities
1: but in in measuring the impact uh, uh, is there is there a global price on you know 0. 0.1 degrees celsius you know how many billions of euros uh, would it would it, would 1 point uh, celsius uh, cost or or how much how much does a ton of CO two cost in um, saving it.
2: Well, I don't think it's just. I don't think you can really look at it just like that because there's also the time issue. Mm-hmm. the The issue is that it's not about how much, just that we admit it's about over the, what time do we do this? And the the issue with the urgency, as as Martin mentioned, you know, decades have gone by while we've been trying to find a way of solving this. Meanwhile, we've been continuing to emit CO2. Um, We're now at a situation where we have to transform our economies, our power generation, our transport and our industries, in a very short space of time now, really. Humankind has left itself a bit of a challenge in terms of the speed which we have to now transform to low-carbon economies. So it's it's about um, how much you emit, and some of it you could price, but it's also about how fast we have to do it. And um, we're trying to avoid what sometimes the scientists call tipping points. I don't actually know if anybody's tried to put dollars per 0.1 of a degree. But I mean, as with all these things, it's the last bit that gets harder. So there's the low-hanging fruits. There are some things we can do which don't cost that much and which, frankly, are more uh, staring us in the face, shall we say, which just involves human beings change what they do. Um, and then there are other things which are transformative changes in technologies, which are going to be harder. Uh, but we need to do them. So I don't know whether I've answered your question, but it's about how much and also how fast we can do it.
0: You started to look into the future there. So the, the the last question I wanted to ask you both, actually, is that it's your it's your turn to impress us and tell us, you know, what your dream is for climate finance. Where Where is climate finance going if agreements like the one in Paris are put in place, what's going to be the effect of that in 10 years' time if we look at climate finance? Nancy?
2: Well, I suppose I have two sides to that. One is I would really like us to get together with other IFIs and other banks and come up with an agreement on how we count adaptation, because we are trying to be quite rigorous and not count the whole resilient road. We want to count the special activities that are done to make that road resilient, uh, otherwise, we believe you end up counting everything, um, but not everybody's on the same page on that, and there are some huge discrepancies, several orders of magnitude in some cases. So we we really need to all get together and have a better common definition of adaptation.
0: Martin, your dream.
3: My dream. Well, first one. I mean, I really mentioned that. I think uh, if if I were. A magical politician who could steer the world. I think uh, fuel subsidies. I think that would be one of the first things to do, and then it would be interesting to see actually how things would play out. I would really like to see this as an experiment. I'm convinced it would actually change things a lot, and people would. At the moment it goes back to your question on on costing, I think mm-hmm. a lot of the time we're not really costing externalities are not costed in, and they're even distorted by by having then um, by having fuel subsidies on top of that, which are very hidden, which are you know. People are used to get them for 30 years, so then nobody thinks about them anyway. So that would be one. But I think the overall would be that we actually can get rid of the terminology climate finance and that that would actually be the normal course in which we're actually financing so that we're actually going towards achieving what we need to achieve under Paris in order to not to burn our planet.
0: Well, maybe our listeners would like to uh, contact us on Twitter and tell us what their dream is for climate finance. Uh, They can get in touch with me uh, at... E-I-B-MATT, E-I-B-M-A-T-T. I'm
1: at Tankler A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. So we'll see you next week
0: on uh, A Dictionary of Finance from the European Investment Bank.